Hey, thanks for joining us here at the Vineyard Church Podcast. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. There's a lot of great resources there that are free and will help you grow closer to God and help you connect with the church. Right now, let's go to our Connections Director, Jen Lewis, for this week's message. So, welcome. Glad you are with us this week. I um, so appreciated Chris's sermon last week. If you didn't watch it um, online or come in services on in person, I would encourage you, go back and, and check out that sermon. The main point was that oftentimes we don't get the Jesus we expect, but we get the Jesus we need. And I so needed to hear that last week. This week, we're going to also see a Jesus that we don't normally expect, but a Jesus that we do need. And so um, as we look into this section of scripture, we're going to be in Mark uh, chapter 11, starting in verse 12. And we're going to look at a, a section of scripture that honestly is often misunderstood. And so I'm excited because of that, because I think once we dig into what exactly is being said here and what exactly is happening here, I think we'll have a fuller understanding of who Jesus is and then who we are as it relates to him. So we're going to be in Mark chapter 11. If you brought your Bibles, you can um, open there or open your Bible app there. Um, But let me start with this. I can venture to guess that most of you have experienced something that I have experienced. And if I must confess, I've experienced it more than I would like to admit. But it'll be a stressful, busy day at work and, and, you know, things are going on and nothing seems to go right. And by the end of the day, you know, my stress, stress level is about to hear. And then I go home and I'm cooking dinner or I'm doing something with the kids and just one final thing sets me off. And I have the adult version of a temper tantrum. Now, I don't know if you've experienced that, but I definitely have. And what I want to say and preface before we even get into this section of scripture is that oftentimes people will look at what we are about ready to see Jesus do, and they will interpret that as Jesus having a temper tantrum. And that is where the misunderstanding lies. Jesus is not having a temper tantrum here. And so I want you to clear that out of your minds. He doesn't sin in his anger. We will see in this section that Jesus is angry. But what we don't want to interpret that as is a temper tantrum. He's not like us. And he has the ability to um, rein in what he needs to rein in and then rightfully do what he needs to do. So we're going to, with all that being said, we're going to look at this section. Now, in the Old Testament, oftentimes prophets would teach parables just like Jesus taught parables, but they would teach them by actually acting them out. And this is what is happening in this section of scripture. Jesus is actually acting out two parables to teach the disciples a truth about who he is. And Mark has this real interesting way of writing. And we've seen this before, but he does this thing called the sandwich where he will start a story on one, at one point and he'll get about halfway through the story and then he'll take you to another story 
And then he'll finish that one off by going back to the original story. So it's like bread, meat, bread, or bread, peanut butter, jelly, bread. And we're going to see that today. The theme of what is happening here is that we are learning who Jesus is as judge. And we're learning it through Mark's technique of the sandwich. So let's start in chapter 12. Now remember, last week, Chris talked about how Jesus had uh, come through Jerusalem riding on a donkey. It was the triumphal entry. It's what we celebrate and what we think about when we think about Palm Sunday. So Jesus came in through Jerusalem. It was bustling with people. They were screaming Hosanna. They were so excited to see him. And then he walked into the temple and then he looked around and he left. Well, today we're picking up where he comes back into Jerusalem. Okay. And so they're on their way. They're going back into Jerusalem. And it says, Um, The next day, as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree in leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves because it was not the season for figs. When he said to the tree, then he said to the tree, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And this and his disciples heard him say it. So he looks at this tree expecting fruit And then when he doesn't have any, he basically curses the fig tree. This is kind of a confusing scripture here. Now, when you read it, you might sit there and think, well, it just said it wasn't the season uh, for figs. So what is all the fuss about? Why would Jesus expect to find figs when it's out of season? Well, apparently, and I say apparently because I know very little about farming. I'm not Julie. I'm not Chris. I know really a little bit about agriculture. And you can tell that by what you see on my deck and in my containers. Every year I attempt to do a really good job at growing things. And every year my plants look like they were cursed by Jesus by, by, you know, late July, early August. I just don't ever remember to water them. But anyway, apparently... After the fall fig harvest, once all the figs are picked and all that is done, the branches of the fig tree sprout these buds, and they stay buds all the way through winter. And they they grow into these green sprouts called pagums. Again, all new to me, but this is what you find out when you have to do research for something. So then in the spring, the trees start producing leaves. But what comes first are these buds. These buds are these pagums, and then come the leaves. And then through the summer, you got the springs, you got the leaves, you got the, and then you start those, those buds start to grow into full-grown figs, which are eventually harvested in the fall. And what I found out was that you could eat these pagums. Now, I had two sources. There was one source that said that the poor would come and eat them. But then I also heard that they were a delicacy. So I'm not sure if the poor just had this delicacy or if what really happened. But what I do know is that these buds did provide food. You could eat them. So if we know they came first and we know this tree had leaves, it makes sense that Jesus would come expecting to find something. The leaves should have been evidence that something else was going on, like the state of the tree was one that would be producing fruit. Wouldn't have been strange that Jesus came up looking for something on the tree, but there wasn't anything. Now, we can assume that if there's no buds in the spring, 
there will also not be figs in the fall. So keep in mind what I said at the beginning. This is not a stressed out, hangry Jesus who's having a temper tantrum. This is more, there's more going on here. He is teaching a lesson. He's teaching a parable. And if you know anything about the Old Testament, you would know that the fig tree is a, was used as a representation or a picture of the, the nation of Israel. And so what Jesus is doing here is he is basically speaking to the condition of the nation of Israel. See, Israel was supposed to be producing fruit. They were supposed to be a fruitful nation. And what he found was when he came and he looked around in the temple yesterday, and when he continued to see all that was going on, despite the fact that they were shouting Hosanna yesterday, they were not producing the fruit of real faith. By all appearances, the nation looked like it was holy, but it wasn't what it appeared. You see, when the nation of Israel was first formed out of the descendants of Abraham, God had said that Israel would be, would be blessed in order to be a blessing. That the nation was not only supposed to be holy and set apart for its own sake, for its own relationship with God, but that the nation was to be a blessing so that all around Israel, all the nations, all the people surrounding Israel would see the beauty of their relationship with God and they would want it. They would long for it. And what we see here is that that was not what was happening. They were to be a people set apart. They were to be a righteous and a holy people, a people that exuded the character of God, a people that would love God with all of their heart, soul, mind, and strength. And this was so that not only for themselves, but also for those around them, they would be drawn to God. And so what Jesus is saying here when he speaks that to the fig tree is he's saying, Israel, your time's up. Your unique role that you have played so far in God's plan is done. Now, Jesus wasn't saying here that there's no hope for the Jews because that's not the case. I mean, they will have the same opportunity to come to God as the rest of the world, and that ultimately will be through Jesus. But Jesus is basically in this moment putting the Jewish nation at the same level as everyone else. There's no separate route to salvation for the nation of Israel. The Jews, like everyone else, will be judged. And just like everyone else, they will be found lacking. And just like everyone else, they will need a savior. And so this is an acted out parable that exposes the spiritual state of Israel. Just like the tree with the leaves, the actions of the crowd the day before would have given the disciples hope that they saw the spiritual, you know, um, leader that Jesus was, but Jesus knew better. Now, let's see how this lesson continues, because now we'll move into the middle of the sandwich. That's your first level of the BLT, let's say. It's only turkey bacon, though. Okay, but moving on. It says, on reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers in the branches in the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. So this particular part, I know it's easy to misunderstand. Again, this is not Jesus throwing a tantrum. This is not also Jesus somehow validating the idea that we can act this way to end something that we think is unjust. 
What we're seeing here is that this is Jesus as judge with the authority of judge, seeing something abhorrent in his house, in his temple, something unacceptable, and he deals with it. Remember, this is his house. This is his temple. He is God in the flesh, and he's walking in and seeing something that is the exact opposite or producing the results that are the exact opposite of what he wanted and what he came to accomplish. You know, it's interestingly, it's interesting that you see here, he obviously has the authority to do it. Like they recognize his authority in some sense. I mean, think about it. Who else could have come in to that place and started throwing things and, and pushing benches over and doing all that he did? And then it says he had time to teach them. Anyone else, they would have grabbed him and taken him out and punished him however they needed to punish him. But they didn't do that with Jesus. He did have an authority that even in that moment, they didn't fully understand, but they recognized it. And he was allowed to do what he did. So then it goes on and it says, and as he taught them, he said, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. Now, last week, Chris shared about how, you know, they had come in um, riding the donkey. It was, it was the celebration of Passover. So that would mean that Jerusalem was really crowded, bustling with people. And so the temple was busy at this point. People were coming from all over the known world to offer sacrifices and to worship God through this time of Passover. And what we see is he came and he saw yesterday, didn't deal with it then, and then came back to deal with the problem today. Now, I, just reading that, kind of think, I wonder if in his wisdom, he didn't do it yesterday because of the fevered pitch of the crowd. You wonder, having the crowd been so riled up yesterday, what would have happened if he had done that the day before? But he comes back and he sees this problem and he does something about it. So what happens when you think about this? You have to understand what's happening within the temple to understand why he's doing this. For Passover, people would come and they were required to bring a sacrificial animal to offer at the temple. Now, for people traveling far, it would be risky to bring your own animal. You could, but you would have to find, first of all, you'd have to have an animal that was without any kind of defect, no spot, no, no cut, no um, deformity of any kind, no abnormality. Even if you had an animal like that in your possession, to take the journey to get to Jerusalem would be risky with that thing. I mean, depending upon how far you would have to go, it's not like you could put them in a, you know, a crate with padding and make sure everything was fine and drive them up in an SUV real quick. You would have to journey over land and, and through you know, crazy scenarios and an infected bug bite or a scratch or anything could disqualify this animal. And so what people would do is they got to the point where they would say, okay, we'll leave our animals behind. We will bring money to purchase a sacrificial animal when we get there. And so they would come and they would, they would barter with the people or they would exchange money with the people um, locally in Jerusalem and get themselves an appropriate animal. At the same time, they were also required to annually pay taxes to the temple. 
And so in order to do that, they couldn't just use their own local money. They had to use the tender that was uh, approved of by the religious establishment. And many of the coins of the day would have had inappropriate images on them and would not have been accepted. And so what they would do is they would go to these booths that were set up and they would exchange their their local money for the, the temple money. Well, What they found out, because people know how to do these things, is they realized that, oh, we can make big bucks on this deal. Now, at the, at, for traditionally, these um, animal markets and the exchange booths were outside the temple. But a recent high priest realized what was going on, and he brought it inside the temple so that the temple was the one making the money. So all this is going on inside what is called the, um, the court of the Gentiles, which is actually a part of the temple where people worshiped. It wasn't just like on the front porch or on the steps. Like it was a part of the holy place. And what was happening is horrendous because you know, I mean, if you know basic economics, you know that when there's a limited supply, you have to pay a higher price. So they knew they had to get these animals, so they had to pay whatever the price was for the animal. And they knew they had to exchange these coins, and so they paid whatever the exchange rate was. So walking in there, Jesus saw greed and exploitation just on display, just like brazenly on display. And then not only was all that happening, but then to realize that these Jews who were supposed to be a light to the world, who were supposed to be an example that would draw Gentiles to God, had, had placed the market in the only place where the Gentiles could worship. You see, the temple was set up in like different segments. You, you start in the center with the Holy of Holies, and then you moved out into um, where the priests could go, and then where the Jewish men could go, and then where the Jewish women could go, and then finally to where the Gentiles could go. They could only go so far. And they could, there was no room for quiet prayer and reflection. There was no room for worship in the midst of the bustle and all that was happening. And so this is not a temper tantrum. This is the king of kings, the Lord of lords, the designer and creator of all things who is looking around and seeing the very people he charged to draw people to himself. And he sees a disgrace. He sees the exact opposite of what he came to do. And he was furious. And justifiably so. And he spells it out for them. I mean, he says, he's quoting Old Testament prophets when he says it, but he says, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. So when you see him respond the way you see him respond, you have to remember he is the righteous judge who had authority to bring this judgment. Now, of course, Jesus' display does not sit well with the religious establishment. And it says in verse 18, the chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. Okay, so he ticked off everybody in power. This is not something you do. If you think about this time in history, 
every average Joe was oppressed. They were either oppressed by the Romans or they were oppressed by the religious hierarchy, but they were all expected to just do it and obey. And Jesus walks in there and he stands up for what is right. And he does not, he just gives it to him and tells him how it is. And the crowd is like, oh, they can't believe it. They year after year after year, you can imagine the frustration that just, I'm doing this because God tells me I have to do this and they are taking advantage of me. And you just have to shut up and take it. Every time you go, every Passover, every year, you're given way more than you should for a goat. You're given way more than you should to get an exchange for coins every year over and over and over again. And those people who are supposed to be holy and righteous and who are supposed to help you come to God are the very ones that are making it hard. So they're desperate and they're frustrated and they've been kicked down and had to take it year after year after year. And Jesus comes and he says, uh-uh. Well, the religious leaders are not excited about this because they had successfully kept it at bay, you know, kept everybody at bay. And they're not happy. And so Jesus becomes a marked man, not like he wasn't already, but they're mad. So here comes the top of the sandwich, okay? So Mark took us to the fig tree. He takes us to the temple. We're going back to the fig tree. So it says in 19, when evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. Now this will be the last time that Jesus sets foot in the temple. This is it. I mean, I know it feels like we've got four months left to the year. Well, and we do, but we're going to spend the next four months looking at the last very small part of Jesus's life. We're at the end here. So it says in verse 20, in the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Now, this is pretty impressive if you think about it. I mean, I don't even know that weed killer would kill a plant that fast. You know, trees don't die in a day. But this tree died in a day. And Peter's a bit disturbed or shocked or sobered just really not real sure how to deal with this. You know, the disciples are used to seeing God or Jesus use his power for good. You know, they've seen so many healings and, and bread galore and everything else, but they've not seen Jesus destroy something with his power. And he did. I think it was probably sobering for Peter. I think it was a little bit like, oh my. And I think for us, honestly, when we read this section of scripture, it should be a little bit sobering to us too. I think so often we think of Jesus as the healer and the savior and the friend and meek and mild, and we get very comfortable with him that way, that we forget his majesty. We forget his awesome, like I want to say awesomeness, but I don't know if that's a word, but we forget he is all. He is the creator of all. He is worthy of our praise in a way that we can't even fathom or understand. He's the creator of all things. He has a right to, to let that tree live and he has a right to let that tree die. He takes, he gives and he takes. And, and he has absolute authority to judge all of it. And that can be intimidating to us at times, you know? 
we like to think of him as our friend, and he is. I mean, that's the beauty of it, and that's the kind of the tension we live in here. Because the truth is, is that God will judge every single person on earth. He will judge every single one of us. There will be a day for all of us, each of us, one by one, where we will stand alone before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to be like the fig tree. And I don't want to be like the temple. And it will all be judged. Believer, unbeliever, everybody. Now what's really good news is that Jesus isn't a heartless judge. That he doesn't look at us and, and in, you know, just without understanding and without patience. Like he gets the fact that we're broken. He gets the fact that we're faulty. He understands that. He knows and understands what it feels like to be tempted and he's not abandoned us. But at the same time, he doesn't take judging lightly. He doesn't take sin lightly. Right before he came down the hill on Palm Sunday, right before that, in the book of Luke, it says that as he approached Jerusalem and he saw the city, he wept over it. And he said, if you, even you, had only known on this day what would bring you peace. You see, he loves us. He's not a harsh judge. He's not unfeeling. But he is powerful and he is just. And he has authority. And he's reminding his disciples of this with these parables. He is loving and he is forgiving, but he is powerful and he is just. Israel had, just like the fig tree, had, had all this outward showing of religious devotion, but it was fruitless. It was empty. And these events mark the end of the Jewish system because a change is coming. Jesus is going to ultimately make all those rituals and the Passover sacrifices obsolete because he will ultimately be the Passover lamb that will, that will take away the sins of the world forever. So Jesus responds to Peter, and he says this, have faith in God. Jesus answered, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go, throw yourself into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they, have, what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Now, I wish I had time to dig deeper into this section. I mean, this, this just these, you know, three, four verses are a sermon in and of themselves. But what I can tell you is that these, these scriptures have been misunderstood and misused for years. Like, talk about a verse that you like to take off and put on a meme on Facebook or put on a magnet or on a mug. You can move a mountain with your faith, you know, that idea. But it's important always that we don't just pluck verses out of the fuller context of Scripture and miss what's really being said here. We know that God is sovereign, and we know that our will 
is, is not the one that rules. It's his rule, that, his rule and reign that ultimately will decide everything that happens. If God doesn't want a mountain moved, it's not going to be moved, no matter what our faith looks like. So what does this mean? What's he saying? Well, what we do know is that faith in a God that is all-powerful is powerful. Our faith, when we, when we use it rightly, when we are aligned with God's will, our prayers can do tremendous things. But what we cannot do is take these couple of verses and ignore all the times in Scripture and in life when faith alone just doesn't seem to be enough. I mean, you and I know we've prayed prayers and we have believed and whatever it was didn't come to pass. Sometimes, you know, it's, it, there's various reasons for this. You know, sometimes it's just that, that, that maybe our hearts aren't right. Maybe it has something to do with like Jesus says here where, where we need to forgive someone and we haven't forgiven them. It's not necessarily a lack of faith, but we're not in a good place. Maybe we need to repent of something or we need to go and make amends with somebody. And sometimes it's just the fact that it's not God's will. And he ultimately will override whatever our prayers are. Now, that doesn't mean we can't influence him. And I know that's just why this could be its sermon in and of itself. But all that being said, when you see this answer in the context of what we're talking about here, we, we will get a better understanding. So Peter is sobered. Remember, he's sobered by what he just saw. He just saw this tree withered. And if he's getting, if he's comprehending this lesson correctly, he's understanding that the Jewish people and all the religious system that they're a part of are ineffective, that Jesus has come and he has judged it lacking. But Jesus points to Peter and to the disciples what will matter when we're judged by God. And it's our faith. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is a gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. The first thing he says there is have faith. We are saved not by what we do, not by weighing our good deeds against our bad deeds or how many times we go to church or how many times we pray or how many old ladies we walk across the street. We are saved by the grace of God through our faith in Jesus. And we can't lose sight of that, especially in this message, because what I'm going to say next can make you kind of feel off kilter a little bit. And from all that we just saw can make you feel a little sobered and unsettled like Peter is. But those metaphorical mountains that Jesus is referring to are really any of those obstacles in life that keep us away from God, that kind of take us away from being in the will of God. Most importantly, those mountains represent the mountains of sin in our lives that God, through our faith, can remove. This section of scripture, though, leaves us with a tension that we have to hold which is so much about what faith is. I mean, faith is so full of tension, and this is one of those. What we do with Jesus determines where we spend eternity, but what we do with our lives impacts that eternity. Let me say that again. What we do with Jesus determines where we spend eternity, but what we do with our lives impacts that eternity. Like I said earlier, we will all stand before God. 
And because he is who he is, he has the authority to judge us. Just like he had the authority to judge the temple, he has the authority to judge us. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to come up wanting. I don't want to be a fig tree. I don't want to be a Pharisee in the temple. You know, at one point, Jesus described the Pharisees as whitewashed tombs, clean on the outside, but dead inside, just empty, fruitless. And if there's one thing that the Bible teaches, it teaches us that we are gonna mess up that we are, there are parts of us that are not going to be fruitful. There are parts of us that are going to feel dead inside. And sometimes we will go through even seasons of, of our faith where we are not who God wants us to be. It's this messy journey. And thankfully, Jesus is not only our judge, but he is our defense attorney. He knows what it feels like to live the life we live. He knows what it feels like to travel through and navigate through this life on earth. And ultimately, he said that he would take our place and would take our punishment, and he did. If you have decided that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and if you have given your, just given your life to him, if you have put your trust in him, and not just, you know, not just a nod to God in an emotional moment, not just religious motions, but if you've really submitted and surrendered your life to his lordship, when you stand before him that day, he will see you as a child of God. He will see you as one he loves, as one who's been washed clean by the blood of Jesus. But along with that position comes responsibility. We will all be held accountable for how we live, how we have let our faith kind of be fleshed out in our lives. And there will be both loss and reward when we stand before God. Now, we don't have time to read it, but in the book of Luke, there's the story of the 10 minas. And I don't know if you remember that story. You can look it up later in the week if you want, but it's the story of a ruler who goes away for a while. And while he goes away, he, he gives um, allotments of money to three ser servants. And he says to them, while I'm, God, you, while I'm gone, you invest this. And you do, you know, you do you, you figure out how to invest this, but you uh, do something for me. And he goes away and he comes back. And each one of those servants is held accountable for what they did with what that ruler gave them. It's where we get the phrase, well done, good and faithful servant. That's from that parable. And Jesus is teaching this concept that we are going to be held accountable for what we do on earth. And there are varying degrees of rewards in heaven. It's not gonna be like we're all gonna get the kitty kick trophy. It's not like that. I don't know exactly how it plays out and nobody really does, but in heaven, there will be work, there will be work and there will be responsibilities. There's gonna be things for us to do. And how we live here will determine to some degree our rewards in heaven and our roles in heaven, what our responsibilities will be. You know, if I have a lot of money here and I spend it all on, on earthly things and all on just pleasures of this world and I don't spend anything on what might advance the kingdom of God or what might help serve someone else um, on earth, I will be judged for that. If I'm given many blessings on this earth, you know, spiritual gifts or knowledge or talents and skills, but I don't use them to shine God's light and to bless others, I will be held accountable for that. If we do the bare minimum just to make it into heaven, 
but we live like hell here and we treat people poorly and we waste our lives away. We just waste our time on meaningless things. We will account for that. And this is a hard teaching. I mean, this is sobering. I'm not, I'm not like, woohoo, are you ready for the judgment day? You know, yes, I'm ready to see God. I'm ready to, to, to experience the love of a father, a heavenly, holy father to their saved child. Like that is very exciting to me. But it is also sobering to think, I also have to account for my college days. I also have to account for what I did at at work day after day after day or how I raised my children or how I spent my Saturday nights or what I did with whatever it was that God gave me. And it is true and wonderful that Jesus loves us and died for our sins and we need to hold on to that. But if that was all we taught, if that was all you ever heard from us up here, we would be doing a disservice to you. Because there is an opportunity here for you to do amazing things for God just for that sake, just because you want to do something amazing for God. But also because there's a consequence in heaven. There will be rewards. I have a friend who says, I don't want to be a pauper on the streets of gold. You don't want to be a beggar in heaven. If you've come to faith, but your life does not look different than the world around you, you've got to ask yourself a question. Am I like the fig tree? Am I not producing the fruit that God wants me to to produce? And in fact, am I, instead of drawing people to God, am I actually hindering that process because I'm not representing him well? And I want to do this right. And I want you guys to do this right. What we do with Jesus matters, and how we live our lives matters. So may the Spirit of God guide us as we go. May he wake us up if our faith has fallen empty into religious rituals, and may our lives be a pleasing offering to him. Let's pray. Father, this is a tough lesson. We really like to hear about your love and your mercy and your grace, but it is scary to recognize that we don't deserve any of that. And it is by your grace and your love and your mercy that we will stand before you one day. And Father, I pray that when we do, you would be able to say, well done, good and faithful servant that you will be able to look at our lives and see fruit. So Father, if there are areas in our lives where we've compromised or where we've fallen into you know, just an empty habit, I pray, Lord God, that you would shine your light on that so that we can address it and that we can live in a way that would bring glory to your name and that would advance your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks again for joining us here at The Vineyard. It's our greatest desire to see you find and follow God, and we hope that this podcast has helped you do just that. For more video messages and content, make sure to visit our website, vineyardwheeling.com, or download our app. Again, thanks for joining us this week. We'll see you next time.